There's no problem too big or small, no issue too hot or cold, and no subject these gentlemen won't talk about. Let's head into the lab to see what they're working to figure out today. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grombacher, and we've got an awesome show for you coming up. This week, I was joined by Rob Weiss, a nationally known author and therapist whose work focuses on sex, porn, cheating, and love addictions. He is the author of Always Turned On, Closer Together, Farther Apart, Sex Addiction 101, and several other titles. We had a timely conversation that talked about the sexual assaults in Hollywood, politics, and seemingly everywhere, what leads to sexual assault, how as a country we do a poor job of talking about sex, and what people can do to start talking about it and start changing behaviors. Please like the show on Facebook, share the episode with someone you think would enjoy it. That's enough about that. Let's go. Let's get into it and get down to it. Welcome to Figure It Out. This is George Grumbacher. Helping us move from awareness to action this week is Rob Weiss, a nationally recognized therapist and author who focuses on cheating, sex, porn, love addictions, treatment and education, he writes about intimacy disorders in the digital age, is the author of books such as Always Turned On, Out of the Doghouse, and Sex Addiction 101. Welcome, Rob. Well, thank you. I appreciate the, uh, the invitation. So we were talking a little bit before we got started about everything that's going on in what it seems like it started in Hollywood, but it's spread to the government with Judge Roy Moore and... Uh, more and more every day. It seems like every time I open up Twitter, there's a there there more are more and more. Okay, I'll, t- I'll I'll consider that to have not been a plan of words. Please continue. <laughs> right, right. And I, I I had asked you if if you thought that that we were actually living in a rape culture, and again the definition of that, which I have come to understand, is. A description of a setting in which rape is pervasive and normalized due to societal attitudes about gender and sexuality. So, mm-hmm. do, you, do you feel like that's where we are, or is that is that extreme? No, I don't think we live in a rape culture. I think that's extreme, um, and I think it's reactive. Um, I think we live in a culture certainly that doesn't really value or understand um, uh, the principles under which. Uh, w- Women show their strengths, compassion, empathy, community building. I think we leave women feeling very guarded and uh, protective, self-protective in our culture. So I, I understand the idea of a rape culture, but I think it's much more, what I would use is, I would say we live in a very patriarchal culture, which is at the moment particularly patriarchal as we look at um, leadership that seems to be more focused on winning, losing, right or wrong, big or smaller, rather than family, community, schools, um, health, and things that really seem to be more important to women. Um, so uh, what I think we're seeing is the beginning of a new women's movement. Uh, I think we're starting with women calling out their victimization and their angriest moments about what's occurring. But if you think that the Harvey Weinstein, Kevin Spacey, Louis C.K. story isn't going to be the story of men who own dry cleaning stores, men who are accountants, men who run businesses all over the country, this will trickle down. Um, but I think what we're seeing is women saying, I'm done with this. You know, I, I, and they're starting with sex, but I don't think it's going to end there for women wanting equality. 
quality in our country, something they still do not have. And these these allegations and the fact that I, I, I'm, I'm not even sure what, what term best to use, sexual assault, is all of these instances and examples and all these victims are now comfortable moving coming forward. Do you think that it's a matter of nature? Is it a matter of nurture? Or what what would what you, you say, say causes... It? What do you mean by it? What would cause somebody to sexually assault another person? Is it a nature-nurture? Well, Is that too simple? I think that's kind of a broad question because if I looked at these three men, for example, I think they've all, uh, or these four men, if you add Roy Moore, or you know, uh, five men, if you add... Uh, uh, our former uh, Dem- our Democratic comedian uh, uh, senator. I-, I think each one is different. You know, each man has different issues. Each man has demonstrated, uh, from what we are hearing, expressing those issues in different ways. And I think you know, it's not while the general public will clump this together as sexually abusive men, which in one way or another they may be. Because um, we don't, you know, everyone's innocent until proven guilty. Um, the reality is, is that where they come from and making the decisions they've made, the kind of distortions they have around sexual relationships, that women or men, the way they see power and authority, um, the way they've acted these things out, it's, it's really different for each person. And, and I kind of understand this, you know, I think that we all would like to have a universal thing that we can point out and say that's the bad thing and that's the bad person and there it is, it's black or it's white and we can name it and see it and we know what to do about it. But the reality is is that, you know, every individual is different and the way they act out their problems and the way that they get into trouble is different for different reasons. And um, I don't think we can universally say that any of these men are similar in what their backgrounds are unless we're actually working with them. But I think that what they're being accused of is coming up as a universal issue for their culture. Um, and therefore they all get painted with the same brush. Well, I think that that certainly makes sense to me. And I, I, I appreciate you, you saying that. And I'm such a proponent of personal responsibility. And I think that the more that we are able to take personal responsibility for our actions and the actions of other people, then the better off we're going to be. That being said, I, I can't help but wonder it seems like the more that I, I read and, and learn about what Hollywood has been for all these years, it almost seems like it's systemic. Um, I, I, if you don't mind, I, I don't think it's, uh, um, I think what we're seeing is something that is an endemic, which is another ek word, endemic to cultures and environments that are male dominated, where men are, men are in authority and women don't have much of a chance of getting ahead. And we see in environments like the legal profession, politics, uh, the Hollywood industry or the entertainment industry and finance, traditionally male-dominated industries where you usually have a few men at the top and not a lot of women able to get to the top. In those environments, you generally see things like women not supporting each other, women not standing up for each other, women kind of being what you might call acting more like men and fighting their way to the top because they have to be like men to get ahead in a men's environment. But on the other hand, those are the same environments where you see women dismissing um, sexual harassment. They want to get ahead. They want to get where they need to get. I mean, I mean, I can just imagine in Hollywood who maybe spent, you know, from 16 to 26 trying to just get to L.A. to get an introduction to someone or get stage. You know, it's not a neat thing. 
first to get to an interview, or and then what's she going to do when some position of person in a position of power says, "Look, if you don't let me do this with you, I'm going to tell everybody you're not worthwhile. You'll never work in this town." Um, that that wouldn't happen necessarily with the one who's applying for a job in a hospital or trying to get work, um, you know, in a in a, in a more uh, in, a, in an environment where there's more quality, more opportunity for women. Yeah, fair enough. And please, throughout our conversation, I, I definitely want you to correct me when I use incorrect phrases. You are the expert, and and I'm 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 just oh, trying I wasn't to. correct you. I was uh, just pointing out that <laughs> we were just using different words. Yes. To me, it's endemic to certain cultures, um, and it, but I don't think it's everywhere in the same way because there are cultures where men are much more aware of women's issues, where men will stand up for women's issues. We have many more women in authority. Women have the potential for authority. There are environments where women are more supportive of each other because they don't have to fight to get ahead. They just have equal merit, or, you know, all of that. So, you know, um, I think it's an environmental issue um, that where the heat gets turned up in places where women don't have a lot of choices. Well, I think that makes sense. What is the, I, I read, I believe it was a Danish study that the conclusion was that the role of power was very much an indicator when there would be sexual harassment or discrimination or, or, or assault. Do you think that, well, I almost hate to ask the question, but if, if the roles were reversed and women held all the power, would there be the potential for them to be more, to victimize men? Or is that a stupid I don't thing think to that say? women tend to be sexually aggressive in the same way that men are. I mean, we don't see as many women rapists. We don't see as many women child offenders. We don't see as many women look at porn. Um, women, women's relationship with sexuality tends to be different than men's. And uh, you cannot come the way men look at sex, experience sex, or, or desire sex, even the healthiest man, with the way a healthy woman does, because we're very different. And so women tend to be less predatory. In their sexual behavior, that's part of who we are as beings. You know, men are out looking, and women are not necessarily in that same way and historically. So I'm not talking about the present. So, you know, I think that there is um, biological and cultural basis for men to tend to be more predatory. It's so, you know, would women abuse power? Sure, women abuse power in all kinds of ways. I don't think that they would, they would be nearly as likely to abuse the power in terms of sex in the way that men do. Yeah, fair enough. Sometimes you just have to ask the question, species, right? Different creatures, those women. Right, right. And, and by the way, let me just say, I have worked with female sex offenders, and I've worked with women who have abused, you know, 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds, and but almost always, 90% of the time, if not higher, I'm working with a woman who's had profound early sexual abuse. So the women that I find who abuse power in whatever form to be sexual with men are tending to... Uh, have issues that drive them to do that. Okay. Whereas a man who's a bit predatory and a bit opportunistic might, as a man, say, walk into a situation that a woman would say, I would never do that, but it would make sense to a man to do. Got it. So there's a couple of, obviously, I think that it's such a, a, a positive thing that, that so many more people are coming forward um, that were victimized. Do you have a sense of how many people that, 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 that it takes if it's one person that says it or two, or is it, 
what is the number potentially that makes people feel comfortable saying, me too, this also happened to me? Well, I, I think we're on a roll here. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Anita, when Anita Hill was testifying before Congress mm-hmm. for the sexual harassment she discussed having experienced at the hands of Clarence Thomas. And I watched Anita Hill and I just on television. She was by herself. There were no women standing by her. There was no Me Too movement. There was no voice in the culture to support her claims. And she got a lot. She got a lot of really horrible, horrible um, responses and feedback and career challenges because she was willing to stand up in the way that she did. So, you know, we're not in that time now. Women are standing up and other women are standing behind them. There's a whole movement around this. So I think we're living in a very different time, as I said, where I think women are angry and women are feeling that their needs aren't being met or seen. And they're starting to speak out in the most obvious ways about the most egregious ways they feel they're being their needs are not being met, but this is, as I said, I think the tipping point of a, a, a new feminist movement. So um, it's just starting here. Exciting times, and is 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 that you think the most accurate term that you would use is a new feminist movement, a new woman's movement? What? Tell me a little bit about how you see this taking form and moving forward. Well, I think that there are forums now for women to find each other, support each other, corroborate each other's stories, and stand out in support of each other because of social media and the internet that didn't exist before. You know, so we have women able to join together from diverse places, diverse cultures all over the world and put in a hashtag and tell their story that didn't exist before. So, you know, just like I, I think we're all pretty clear that the internet has created confusion on what is true and what isn't true and, you know, it's created some uh, uh, kind of pipelines that we live in based on our particular viewpoints and, you know, it's created a lot of challenges for people to hear their truth and to understand what is a reflection of what they believe or to versus what is real. Um, I don't think that it has also created opportunities for people of all kinds to connect around issues. And uh, right now, women are connecting the world around this issue, and they weren't able to do that before. A woman standing up in one environment or another, or maybe even if she made television, it became something that, like, with Anita Hill, you might have seen or didn't see. But no one can miss this because this is international and it's everywhere. And that's the internet. Twitter using its power for good. And by the way, women prefer social media. They like social media. They like it more than men do. Um, women are, enjoy community more than men do in a way. Men tend to be more about their buddy or their posse. Women tend to be more community focused. And so, you know, the original Internet Phase 1 pre-2007 was a much more of a men's uh, environment where we were setting up websites and people were going to those websites to do things or buy things or engage with, with experiences. But when it comes to community and being communal and exchanging information and building and coalescing, women do that better than men. And they're much more engaged and interested in social media than men. And so it doesn't surprise me that this is the place they found to say, okay, we can join together here. Well, I think that that's a, a, that, that certainly makes sense. So the way forward, certainly it seems like I, 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 I hope that everybody's now aware. Um, where do we go? How do we, how do we change the way that we talk about? Do we, do we change the way we talk about interactions, sex? I, how do we educate people on this if they need to be? I, I think, you know, the wonder of humanity, I mean, if, when I look at the human beings, because I am pretty humanistic, my belief is that when you create a situation for the body to heal, the body will heal. 
And when you create a situation where the mind can heal, the mind will heal. And when you create a situation where the culture can be the heal, the culture heals. And these women speaking out and the support that they're near university getting outside of the political arena um, is positive and encouraging and supportive. And so we have a, an environment that is open to healing. And women are talking, many people, not just women, there are men who have been abused too, who are coming out and talking about the problem and they're being well received. So. I think we're already on the way to cultural change in this arena. I don't think anybody is going to take sexual harassment um, lightly anytime soon. And we, I bet you every HR department in the United States and any large company is looking at their sexual harassment policies right now. And they're determining, well, do they need to do a review with their staff? Do they need to do a company-wide blah, blah, blah? That wouldn't be happening if this wasn't out there. So I think we're already in the midst of cultural change. Um, because this drum has been beaten loud enough that um, you can't not hear it, or you have to hear it. You can't avoid it. Definitely agree. And I think that the, the theme of, of so many of these conversations that, that, that I have on the show is that you can't make enormous worldwide change on your own. What you can do is focus on your family, your friends, your community, and by you making those changes, if everybody did that, well, then that's how you would make a, a worldwide change. Um, it's, even if it's fear-based change, even if it's I don't want to lose my job, I don't want to get in trouble, you know, a lot of, not everyone is the most loving, caring, supportive, <laughs> we would need rules and guidelines and laws if everybody learned that something hurt someone and they never, then everyone decided to never do it again. <laughs> you know, um, so, you know, along with the awareness needs to come the instruction, which is how do we handle this in the workplace? How do we handle this at home? How do we talk to our kids about it? And I think, again, you know, the awareness is bringing all of those things are coming up. All those conversations are being held. Um, my fear about all this, if you want, is that um, that as things roll out, and we're going to hear a lot more stories, I don't doubt that, um, that, it, that it can become um, not something that you've overheard, like, you're not listening anymore, but more that something that gets talked about so much might become, oh my God, every woman's experienced it, sort of dismissed. Yes. Like, um, and so my only fear is that it's like, um, you know, a little bit of noise is really good, too much noise is just too much noise. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think there has to be a balancing point where, you know, everyone is not outing their brother-in-law, sister, you know, their brother-in-law, brother or uncle, or, you know, I mean, everyone has a story. Um, let me put it this way. I wrote a, uh, I read a lot of blogs. I wrote a blog called hashtag me too, me hashtag imperfect men. And, uh, the reason I wrote that blog is because, you know, when I see women and the courage that they're showing and some men have been abused too, coming out and talking about their stories, telling their histories, you know, getting the respect and attention for what they've gone through. I, I really think that's an amazing, wonderful thing. And then I see the culture pointing at all the rest of us pointing at, as a group, pointing at three or four or five or six famous men who have crossed lines they shouldn't have crossed. And to me, that is the sound of one hand clapping. You know, it is not a conversation. It's women talking, uh, and it's the victims and survivors talking, and everyone talk, pointing at these couple of people. Mm. But the reality is that most of the women are talking about men who are not on TV, who have not been, uh, uh, you know, put up on, uh, on podcasts or interviews. and. A lot of men have done a lot of crappy things to women, and they're not standing up and saying, you know, I, I, I wasn't always the best guy. I hit on a woman when I shouldn't. I hit on my secretary at that Christmas party. I pushed that woman a little harder. I mean, 
there are many men in this country who could own a little piece of this story. And then it would be a conversation where men standing out saying, you know, Alvin, I'm learning. I'm learning how to be a better man. I'm learning to treat women. I don't think women expect that we're going to do this perfectly. <laughs> um, they understand that men can tend to be predatory. Men tend to walk it down. Women sometimes do. So I don't think it's about perfection. I think, it's, as you said, it's about refinement and owning. How can I be a better man? How can I learn from mistakes I've made or ways I haven't treated people well and become a better person? And as I think you fully believe, as I do, and all the sex addiction work that I do, and any addiction work I do, it's certainly clear that it's about accountability and taking responsibility and owning your part. How can you not repeat or not do something if you don't see your part in it? And I guarantee you that there are more men than not who have, in America who have a small piece of having upset a woman in some way around sex or intimacy that they could now own and learn from. And I don't, I'm waiting for that conversation to start. Yeah, I know that I personally, uh, I, I could probably think of some, uh, some experiences that I had that I could probably could have done better. So your advice, Rob, on if I have a one-year-old son, so he's uh, not at the stage where I need to have a conversation with about this, or I could talk to him about it, but he wouldn't get it. Um, if I had uh, kids that are a little bit older, how would I talk to them about this? Well, I, I think that, that, you know, again, there is no one issue here. There are many issues here, um, and one behavior that's carried out has many sources, and depending on the individual who's carrying the behavior out. But the, the most important thing I think we need to be doing is talking to our kids about sex. Um, I mean, I'm a sexologist, so, you know, I'm well aware that only 20 states in America offer mandatory sex education. Um, and in those 20 states, I think a third of them, you have to have parental permission. So not all, all of our children learn much about sex, sexual interaction, sexual health, treating people right. They certainly aren't learning about it in schools if they're not allowed to. And then, you know, every, every kid is looking at porn. There's no question in my mind that every kid in America, I don't care how conservative your home, I don't care how good a parent, your kid's looking at porn because they are kids and they're looking at porn. So the question is, how are parents talking to their kids about what they're seeing online, what conversations? This is no longer 1972 or 1992. Kids are seeing and experiencing the entire gamut of human sexuality by the time they're 14. And so... We can't leave it to the schools to talk to our children about this. We have to talk to our children about this. And if you don't know how, get one of those books that says how to talk to your 8-year-old about internet uh, internet images, how to talk to your 10-year-old about what they might see online, how to talk. There's lots of material for kids of every age. But if we don't raise our children to understand that porn is adult entertainment and not what really happens in life, um, that people don't usually do something in three minutes and they don't usually have something that size and they don't usually interact in that way and that that's entertainment that's not real, who's going to tell them that? Who's going to tell your young man when he's 17 that a three-minute money shot is not real and that's not how people really treat each other if his parents don't and he doesn't learn anything about it on in school, but boy, if he watching the porn that shows him that over and over again. We are no longer living in a culture where parents have the option to avoid talking about sex with their kids. They have to. There is no other place that children are going to learn the meaning of sexuality in terms of relationship, connection, um, uh, intimacy building, even procreation or, re or, or even recreation, how recreational sex works or doesn't work. And if we're not having those conversations with our kids, then how are they learning about it? And, and that is really what I'm concerned about. I couldn't agree with you more. I just saw it. I, I think it was uh, 
John Oliver's show talking about sex ed and the deficiencies of it or the lack there of it. And I, I, I left, I stopped watching the show thinking, well, that's got to be the parents' responsibility to do that. Now, if it were easy, then everybody would do it and it'd be a piece of cake. What resource? That's why we have guys. That's why we have professionals to help parents. So, and, and let me just say this. So you, I don't know how many parents you have listened, but you are a dad, so you may have some. If you're a parent and you find porn on your kid's computer and you're upset about it or you're freaked out about it or you don't know what to do, the first best thing is to do nothing and go talk to a professional or a counselor or your clergy or someone who can help you sort it out so you don't run up to your kid and start yelling and screaming at them about what they're looking at online because you're not just talking about them sitting up with a flashlight late at night when they're supposed to be sleeping, you're talking about their sexuality. And whatever your feelings are about whatever they're looking at, you don't want to approach your kids and say, what, what are you doing, oh my God, because you're talking about their sexuality and that will affect them the rest of their lives. So, um, but I, I, I don't think we lack opportunities to learn about how to talk to our children about these issues. I think we lack willingness. And, and let's face it, America has a sex problem. <laughs> um, we've all had a long had a sex problem. You know, I work in the sex addiction field and I've written, what, seven books on the topic or something. And I can tell you that I don't have any problem talking about or educating about or disagreements about talking about sex addiction or compulsive sexual behavior or any of those issues when I'm in Europe teaching or when I'm in Asia teaching or I'm in Africa teaching. Everyone understands what I'm talking about. When, I, when it comes to America, we battle and fight over sexuality because it has so many moral and religious overtones that, that Americans seem unable to get away from. And thus, we don't have something as simple as universal basic sex education for all of our children. I mean, what could be more more simple than that? But we don't do it. And that's because America has a sex problem. Everybody just needs to relax. <laughs> so uh, That's what offenders say. Oh. Just relax. It'll be over in a minute. Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> I don't think relaxing. I don't think it's about relaxing. No, I I, I'm, I'm just saying that, that the people need to, to, to realize that sex is a, a real thing that happens and we just need to talk about it. And that's that's do you know, that's what I meant to say. Do you know that when – do you know that – and you probably do. If, if you walk into a treatment center where I'm treating sex addiction or treating alcoholism or if you walk into a mental health center in this country, that you will get a complete assessment – mental health and behavioral and physical. So you walk into a treatment center or a rehab or even a mental health center, you will, will, we will ask you about your eating habits, your exercise habits. We will interview you about your social life, how your high school went, how college went, what relationships you've had. We'll ask you about uh, eating. We'll ask you about recreation. We'll ask you about your social life. We will ask you on assessments to try to figure out everything about you so that we can best help you. But there's not a thing in mental health assessments in America that mention masturbation or porn or sexual behavior or affairs. And I have to tell you that there are lots of people who have sexual issues that they never talk about in treatment or in therapy or in settings where they really need to because no one ever asks. And um, again, this is an American problem. <laughs> when you go to Europe or Asia, asking about sex is just like asking about eating. It's asking about exercise. It's just a part of your body. It's part of natural function. Right. It's just a part of who we are as beings. But in America, it takes on so many other meanings that we end up just sort of avoiding it. I can't tell you how many therapists I've worked with who don't know how to use the word masturbation in a sentence. Um, and these are people who have graduate degrees and licenses. Wow. So it isn't just 
the public in general, our clinical community, our mental health community, our addiction community, we're not trained in graduate school to talk about sexuality. We're not trained to assess for it. But you know as well as I do that it's very frequent that someone who has sexual abuse history or has been, you know, harmed in some way when growing up might their drinking problem or alcohol or drug or mental health problem might be directly tied to that abuse. And by the way, we might ask them about abuse in their past, but we won't ask them about their behavior in the present. As if somehow we don't exist from our belly buttons to our knees when we go to treatment, but everything else gets asked about. And that's just, to me, crazy. <laughs> so how do we change that? So we have a lot of work. America has a sex problem, and it extends to the mental health and addiction industries. Psychiatrists don't ask about sex. Your, your general practitioner, your internist is probably going to really struggle asking about sex, no matter how much they're trained, unless you come in with an STD or something. So, um, yeah, I can't recall yeah, ever to learn how to talk about it. To be, I'm sorry, I'm interrupting. I can't recall ever talking to a mental health or any kind of a medical, anybody about sex. So, uh, thank you. Um, wouldn't you think that if you go in to see a mental health worker or an addiction counselor or a psychiatrist or before they put you on meds, before they put you in group, before they decide what's, what's up with you, in addition to asking you about aspects of your social life and physical life and recreation, that they would also ask you about your sexual life because it is as much of a part of our vibrant human experience as eating or sleeping or family. But we don't because we don't, therapists are not trained because we're trained that that would make clients feel uncomfortable. Well, I have to tell you as a therapist who's been asking clients about their sexual lives for 25 years, my clients are not uncomfortable because I'm perfectly comfortable asking about it. Go figure. And therefore, they feel perfectly comfortable answering the questions. Right. But if you go to a client and you say, I, I, I'd like to ask you about, I don't mean to make you uncomfortable, I know it's going to be about master, you know, well, I don't make you, you know, they're never going to ask the question because they know you're as uncomfortable as they are. And that's a training issue for our mental health professionals, not, uh, which is fed by the society not wanting to talk about sex. And it's a shortcoming of our, of our not new issues. parents and not talking new to issues. the kids too, right? Certainly if, if a mental health professional doesn't have the training to talk to their patients about sex, then a parent probably is not going to effectively talk to their children about it either. Well, imagine that no marriage and family counselor in America, no social worker in America, people who work with children and family and couples all day long has more than a week or two of training and talking about sex or learning. That's a problem. How do you treat couples? You know that when we look at divorce, I mean, one of the top three things that cause divorce is adultery and sexual problems. That's one of the top three, but we don't talk about it. No one gets into premarital discussion. They talk about whether they want to have kids or not. They would talk about where they want to live and how they feel about each other. We have premarital counseling, marital counseling, all that stuff. No one asks you about how do you guys feel about fidelity? What happens if he or she has an affair? I and mean, we don't talk about those things. We let couples get married without really helping guide them or even evaluate if they're a good fit around these areas because we don't like to talk about it. Right. Hmm. Well, Rob, thank you so much for your time and your insights today. Um, where, can, where can people learn more about you and your work? Well, I'm easy to find. First of all, if you type in Rob Weiss and type in sex addiction, you're going to find me everywhere. Uh, I have a website, which is uh, Robert Weiss, my name, msw.com. You can find me on Twitter at Rob Weiss MSW. You can find me on Facebook at, at Rob Weiss MSW. I blog for Psychology Today, for the Huffington Post. I'm 
I'm out there and uh, just finished a book on cheating for men who cheat called Out of the Doghouse, which is a really cool book for men to read if they want to understand why their, their woman is so angry. I will help them understand that. Well, I certainly appreciate the work that you're doing and it seems like you've got a lot more work to do. So <laughs> It's a busy time because we are at the moment, and as it's worth just saying real quick, we're seeing a window where America wants to talk about sex. We, have, we don't see those windows open up very often. So this is a window because of what's coming up where, yes, people are calling me and wanting interviews, but more importantly, that we're actually having conversations around the dinner table because we're seeing this on the news, and that's a good thing. Uh, that's a good start. Um, how it plays out over time, uh, I think, is, of course, the more important issue. And thank you for the opportunity to join you. Yeah, thank you, sir. I know that just over the past two days with two of my uh, two of my male friends over a cup of coffee and today at lunch, we, uh, we we were talking about all these issues. So I think that you are right that this is an opportunity to start talking about things, but then hopefully actually doing things about it. So, so thank you again, sir. Uh, thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Please like us on Facebook and feel free to share this episode with somebody that you feel could benefit from it. And as always, keep questioning because the struggle is real. Rob, great, great job, sir.